This module is on the premature infant in the acute care setting. When collecting data for your history, it is important to determine what the child's gestational age is. So take a look on page 81 in the pack book, figure 16.1 shows you the new Ballard scoring system. We also look to determine if a child is small or large for their gestational age. This is typically where children reside either in the lower or upper 10th percentile on their growth charts. Children that are small for gestational age are at risk for this based on maternal bleeding, placental insufficiency, or chronic gestational hypertension. They can also be at risk due to chronic stress during the pregnancy, such as congenital defects, poor maternal health and nutrition, or congenital viral infections. There is also the corrected age, which is the birth gestation age plus their chronological age in weeks. Many centers still use this today to determine the child's overall age, but some centers do not. When gathering the history, it is important to collect a complete maternal history for both prepartum, intrapartum, and postpartum complications or therapies that were given. It is important to know the mother's lab data, infection history, medications that she's been taking, acute and chronic disorders, as well as mental health disorders. I remember caring for a child who had tricuspid atresia in the cardiac ICU, and we found later on that her, his mother was on lithium therapy for one of her mental health disorders. And we know that there's a direct correlation from maternal use of lithium and cardiac defects such as tricuspid atresia um, in the neonatal population. So it's important to gather as much information as possible when doing your intake. We also want to know social history for both the current conditions and what conditions you're going to discharge the, the child home to. Is this a single mother who's had a history of drug abuse? Or is this a mother and father with other children in the home caring for this infant when they leave? So you want to get as much information as possible on the social history. Family history will lead you to determine whether you should be evaluating for or have suspicion of known genetic diseases or disorders. And then, of course, we want to know what the child presented like during the delivery. What were their APGAR scores? Did the child require... Uh, resuscitation at the time of delivery, or were they given additional treatment and medications other than what is normally given during delivery? All of this is important when gathering a history. Now, birth history, as detailed as this, I typically get for all children that are younger than a toddler. And that is just so that I have that information available in case, in case we have to go back and investigate um, for certain disorders or certain things that we might have not picked up on earlier. But it's good practice to just gather this information for that population. As children get older, even if they had a complication during the delivery, we don't have to be as specific as the entire birth history, but we do want to maintain and keep those critical details that have led to the either current and chronic diagnosis or may have, may have an impact on an acute illness. When we look at gathering our vital signs in our physical exam, we want to make sure that we do a very thorough investigation specific for the premature infant. So we know that their temperature may vary with their environment. So we want to make sure 
that we evaluate these children <clears throat> and get a good temperature um, as we are caring for the patient. So for example, a neonate that becomes hypothermic can develop coagulopathy. This can be very important for the post-op cardiac neonate who is in the ICU postoperatively, and if they become hypothermic, they can have the tendency to continue to bleed or, or not be able to clot their blood. Um, so these are things to be aware of as part of your therapies, but also if the child becomes hypothermic, these are things that you should start looking for. We also know that premature infants can have this periodic breathing, and this is where they'll have normal respirations, but every few minutes they may have a pause for five or so seconds. I believe your textbook says it can be between five and ten seconds. They're not considered to be apneic episodes until the, they hold their breath or they cease breathing for 20 seconds or more. And these children may require additional equipment or monitoring um, if they are having this apnea of prematurity. But just note that periodic breathing is pretty normal for this age group. When we look at their blood pressure, we know that we monitor the mean arterial pressures more closely in our premature infants and neonates than we do with other children. And that's because their gestational age should equal a normal mean arterial pressure for that child. So if an infant is born at 36 weeks, their mean arterial pressure, despite what the systolic and diastolic is, should be around 36. They, if they do develop hypotension, you're probably not going to notice it as much in the numbers or specific, more specifically, the numbers may not be as significant, but you do want to look for physiologic factors, such as an elevated heart rate, elevated respiratory rate, poor perfusion, delayed capillary refill, modeling, decreased urine output, or coolness to the extremities. And oftentimes we'll, we'll notice this in children that have uh, poor cardiac output, specifically after cardiac surgery. These are all the things you should be looking for with each and every assessment. We also note that hypertension is typically going to be two standard deviations above the mean value um, for that child's age. And we do do pretty frequent four-extremity blood pressures on the premature infant, um, especially if there's a concern for any type of cardiac defect, specifically looking at patent ductus arteriosus, as well as coarctation of the aorta. Also on your physical exam, you, again, you want to do a more thorough exam, but also want to be aware of certain findings that can um, be specific to the preterm infant, such as these preterm infants can have shaky and jerky random movements. Their skin is thinner. You want to evaluate the skin for jaundice. Um, so you're going to look at their billy, billy labs to determine if they're elevated billies and if they are, which direction are they trending in? Is the child becoming more jaundice? or are they improving? We're gonna do head circumferences as well as lengths and weights. Sometimes your head circumferences and your weights are gonna be more frequent than the lengths. And here we're looking to see if there's any increase in the cranial size, which may relate to hydrocephalus or other pathologies. We're also gonna to wanna to look at the head, eyes, ears, nose, and throat for any type of markings that could be suspicious, such as pits, skin tags. These can lead to or have high suspicion for other congenital defects. We're going to look at the lip and the palate to assess for the integrity um, to see if there's any 
clefts uh, pr present. We're going to want to look in the nose to make sure that we have patent um, air passages, air passage through the nose. We're also going to want to assess their normal reflexes, such as sucking and the rooting reflex. This is typically established by 32 weeks of uh, gestation. When we examine the chest, aside from the normal uh, auscultation and inspection, we're going to look to make sure that there's good symmetry on both sides. We also may note that there might be breast buds present, and this can be from excessive maternal hormones circulating during the pregnancy, and some of these children may even express milk from their nipples. So this is sometimes a normal finding. When we evaluate for heart sounds, we want to do a good job listening to both S1 and S2. There may be a physiological split of the S2. Um, we're going to want to assess the point of maximal intensity, which is typically at the fifth intercostal space for the preterm infant. And then when we look at their abdomen, we want to assess the shape, the size, and the evaluation of the umbilicus. And then, of course, when we're looking at their genitalia, we're going to look to make sure the genitalia is appropriate, or if there's ambiguous genitalia, identifying that early on and consultating the appropriate surgical services. When we, when we assess their environment, we want to make sure that we are doing a good job keeping them thermoregulated. And most of our premature infants go in isolates where they have uh, a controlled ambient temperature. Um, and the, the, the reason for this is that the infant needs a certain amount of brown fat. And the brown fat is used for heat production. And this is, brown fat typically develops around 26 26 to 30 weeks of gestation. Um, so if they don't have enough of that brown fat store, they're going to require us to provide that for them. The perception of pain. There used to be this myth that neonates don't feel pain. And part of that was due to how we were, or, or what medications we could deliver to them to treat their pain. But we do know that infants go through a lot of procedures that are identified as uncomfortable in older children. And we do want to make sure that we provide the right amount of pain control for them when we're doing procedures. With their development, again, we want to make sure that we're positioning them in positions of function so that they don't develop any type of joint issues or laxity. Um, one thing I can identify here is, you know, when we position them, we don't want to leave them flat on their back because they can develop um, misshapes to their head, um, and we want to make sure that we're providing good uh, rotation as well as positioning when, when they're lying in the isolates. We also want to cluster their care for multiple reasons. One, we go back to that thermal regulation, making sure that we maintain their body temperature, but we also want to give them time where they're not being stressed. So we want to cluster the care um, as much as possible, giving them plenty of time to get into a good rhythmic sleep, which can help promote other neurological functions, as well as helping them develop appropriately. And then kangaroo care, that skin-to-skin -skin contact, has been a huge development over the last few years, or the last 10 or 20 years, allowing the child to have that skin-to-skin -skin contact, which has a multitude of benefits, such as oxygen saturation levels, heart rate, respiratory rate, stability with their temperature and weight gain, um, blood glucose levels, reduction of infection and apneic events,
It also increases their, their behavioral stability. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to having that kangaroo care, even outside of the knee, uh, even outside of the NICU. Our first disorder that we'll talk about with the new, the premature infant and newborn is the intraventricular bleeds or hemorrhages. This is probably the most common neurological complication for this age group, and it's due to the fragile nature of the blood vessels that can bleed from from certain stresses. So more commonly, you'll see a grade one view. This is where you have isolated bleeding into the germinal matrix, and it can become as severe as a grade four bleed, which can have complete filling of the lateral ventricles. Their presentation can be a change in activity, a full anterior fontanelle, which indicates an increase of volume or even pressure inside the cranium. You'll also want to assess their CBC to evaluate any drops in the hematocrit. They can develop a metabolic acidosis or seizures. Your diagnostics here are going to be doing serial head ultrasounds to evaluate the progress of these type of, of bleeds. You're going to want to consult your surgical services, your neurosurgical services, because it may require shunting to shunt some of that fluid away from the ventricles. Um, and they can be at risk for developing periventricular leukomalacia. Next, we'll talk about retinopathy of prematurity. And we know that the blood vessels of the retina, macula, at the optic nerve develop around 16 weeks of gestation. And here you have a premature infant developing a disruption of that vascularization, oxygen deprivation, and scarring. And ultimately, you can have a detachment of the retina from its normal position. These typically are seen through a, a thorough ophthalmological exam done by an ophthalmologist, and they'll do screening. They screen all children that are 31 weeks post-conception or four weeks in their chronological age. And this allows the physicians to go in and take a look to see if there are any changes and to provide early intervention if needed. Children that are at risk or any child that's under 1,500 grams or under 30 weeks of gestation, or if they are older than 30 weeks gestation, they might have a low weight such as 1,500 to 2,000 grams will also fit that risk category. And again, please take a look at table 16.2 for your stages of retinopathy, as well as figure 16.3, which goes over the different zones of the eye that can be affected. Again, your diagnostics are going to be these frequent or uh, interventional, um, excuse me. For your diagnostics, again, it's going to be the ophthalmolog ophthalmological exam. They can provide laser therapy or medications such as the bevexicumab. Um, and ultimately, you know, if there is a detachment or problems, they can have a surgical vitrectomy or scleral buccal procedure of the retina. Next, we'll talk about anemia of prematurity. And typically, children will have a pretty normal or stabilized hemoglobin until they reach about three to four weeks of life. And this is about the time when your hepatic system no longer uh, makes the red blood cells and allows the bone marrow to take over. And the same thing around uh, erythropoiesis, the, the liver doesn't play as much of a part and the kidney starts to take over. Um, so 
oftentimes with this drop in their hemoglobin, um, this will be known as their physiologic nadir or their physiologic baseline. Um, and then this number should increase over time. Your concerns will be if they start developing physiologic symptoms of anemia, such as a fast heart rate or apnea, an increase in oxygen requirement, uh, changes in the heart rate, such as bradycardia, poor weight gain, um, decreased activity or pallor. Again, your diagnostics are going to include good physical exam assessment, as well as evaluating your CBC. You want to make sure you limit your blood draws, because your blood draws, we can actually exsanguinate a patient iatrogenically just by drawing labs, specifically those that are pretty small, your premature infants. I remember a time when we were drawing a lot of PT and INRs on patients that were receiving um, anticoagulant therapy or even checking PTTs. And if you work at an institution that doesn't utilize the neonatal blue top tubes to test those coags, um, the, the adult size is almost 3 mLs that's required to fill the tube so that you get an adequate mixture of the, the anticoagulant inside the tube to run the test. And, you know, if you're drawing labs four to six times a day um, for a very small infant, that can add up very quickly. Um, and the other thing to consider, too, is even if you're not drawing coags, what is the policy in your institution on drawing waste? So if you're drawing three to five mLs of waste every time you're drawing labs, that can be also a significant amount of, of waste unless you're giving that waste back. And that practice too is also controversial. So you wanna take all that into consideration, especially if you're investigating or trying to figure out what's wrong with someone, or you're trying to stabilize a therapy such as anticoagulation to make sure that you're being cognizant of how much blood you're drawing. And when you're evaluating them, make sure you, you know, take a peek at what the hemoglobin is doing um, to, to minimize how much you're drawing. Again, your nutrition status is going to be important to developing um, and making strong and healthy red blood cells. And transfusions, we tend to only give unless we feel that it's symptomatic or it's necessary for the treatments that we're providing for the child. We don't just transfuse to correct the number. We want to know what this transfusion is going to do to support the child while they're in the hospital. So again, you may not treat right away, and we often set our target numbers kind of low. Um, just so that we don't arbitrarily start transfusing. And of course, we could give epigen, but this is still pretty controversial with premature and neonatal infants. Next, we'll talk about necrotizing enocolitis. This is an ischemic and inflammatory disorder of the bowel. We typically see this in premature infants, more noticeably when we start enteral feeds. And this is essentially is due to an immature GI system. And that's immaturity of motility, digestive ability, circulation, barrier function, and immune defense. And with this inflammatory process, we get this cascade of events that leads to mucosal damage, which then allows for invasion of bacteria into the bowel wall. These children typically present with a wide variety of abdominal um, Symptoms such as mild abdominal distension to uh, gaseous distension, 
We can have a significant amount of residual feeds, bilious to bloody emesis, bloody stools, or even shock. Your plan here is going to be look at the different uh, radiographs, specifically your anterior posterior view of the abdomen or your KUB and your left lateral decubitus. And on your left lateral decubitus, we're looking specifically for several things. Number one, a dilated bowel loop pattern. Pneumatosis, when you see that on film, or this may even be the question you ask radiology, do you see pneumatosis on this film? And this is where you have air escaping into the, the intima of the bowel and you have like the speckled appearance. And I'll post a picture up here um, after this slide to show you what they kind of look like from the textbook. Um, the other concerning area would be intrahepatic portal venous air. And this is where air is escaped from inside the bowel into your venous uh, portal system. Um, are there fixed bowel loops um, as well as ascites or free air in the abdomen or perforation? We also want to check our blood gas because we can see a metabolic acidosis. Our CBC will be specific for low platelet count or thrombocytopenia as well as neutropenia. We'll want to draw coags to see if there's any coagulopathies present and of course any electrolyte imbalances and we'll want to do a thorough set of cultures. Our plan of care is going to be to decompress the abdomen, provide broad spectrum antibiotics. We're going to keep the child NPO, provide IV fluids and nutrition intravenously. We're going to do serial abdominal radiographs and oftentimes children that we catch this early we can treat them medically with this rest pattern, um, but if there's significant uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, we have to consult surgery for them to determine if we're gonna treat it medically or if they need to take them to the operating room. And this can be a life-threatening condition, so you wanna notify them as soon as you've determined that there may be an issue with this. Lastly, we'll talk about sepsis in the premature infant. And some of the factors that we have is that these you know, these patients tend to have a, an extremely immature immune system and they can deplete their neutrophils pretty quickly. Um, premature infants typically have one-tenth of the neutrophil pool compared to that of an adult. When we look at them, there's this early onset picture versus late onset. The early onset, we're going to see, we're going to identify some risk factors from the mother. Does she have UTI? fever during the delivery, intrauterine infections, inflammation, or colonization. They can have um, infections that present at birth, such as bacteremia, meningitis, or pneumonia. The common organisms that are identified are group B strep, E. coli, and gram-negative organisms. And these typically have a much higher mortality than some of our other bacteria that we see. Your symptoms are going to include respiratory distress, temperature instability, hypotonia, irritability, GI symptoms, acidosis, lethargy, and poor perfusion. Again, with these patients, you want to do a very good and thorough maternal and um, pregnancy history. You want to do a thorough physical exam. We're going to check cultures. We're going to do a lumbar puncture and assess their CSF, as well as getting a CBC and electrolytes. Our drugs of choice, um, typically we start off with AMP and GENT um, or cefotaxime, um, but we wanna make sure that we not only start the broad spectrum antibiotics, but once we've identified 
and we have our sensitivities, make sure that we're treating these um, organisms appropriately. For late onset, this is typically defined as a positive culture, clinical signs of sepsis, and after, usually typically after 72 hours of life. So if you have a child that you're suspicious of and you're evaluating and investigating, that's typically your early onset, your late onset is now you have a positive culture, we have physical signs of sepsis, and we have uh, at least 72 hours of life, and we call this late onset. The common bugs here can be a little bit more um, extensive, such as staph, staph aureus, MRSA, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, Candida, Enterococcus, and E. coli. Other factors can include necrotizing enterocolitis, prolonged hospitalization, and prolonged antibiotic use, TPN, and central line placements. Our plan of care is going to include doing a full set of cultures. That's blood, urine, CSF, CSF cell counts. We'll check our CBC, as well as you might want to consider running some fungal cultures as well, specifically if you're using um, frequent antibiotic usage. Our broad spectrums are going to include um, vanc, uh, vanc or gent, um, and that could include also a cephalosporin. If we're concerned for meningitis, we'll throw in some cefotaxime. If there is a GI um, concern, we can run, we can give them clindamycin for good anaerobic coverage as well. And then lastly, before we send these patients home, we want to make sure we plan for good, um, a good discharge because these kids may require a lot of support once they leave. So we want to look to see if there's any physical developmental and neurological needs um, many times we can sign these or register these children to be followed by a neonatologist for a developmental clinic um, once they've discharged from the hospital. We want to make sure that they're getting adequate nutrition. We're following their growth charts closely. We're making sure that they're gaining weight appropriately before we discharge them. And make sure that we educate the parents on what good weight gain is for their premature infant and when they should have concerns and when they should bring the child back. We also want to include safety in the home. There may, there may need to be a home evaluation before sending them home. And we also want to know what kind of support these parents have. If this child does require a 24-7 uh, care model, we may need to ensure that they get home health care or that they have the appropriate support system, extended family members or other members of the family that can help them. For our really sick kids, oftentimes we make sure that the parents are CPR certified. Um, and we usually require at least two members or two caregivers um, are going to be CPR certified. So we can do that training in the hospital before they leave. Now the American Heart Association has self-learning modules for bystander CPR, as well as some centers even just have a care coordinator that is a CPR instructor and can do hands-on training with the parents or caregivers before they go home. And then, of course, we want to you know evaluate and discuss all the preventive health that we want to do for this child, such as follow-up visits, well-child visits, immunizations, and things like that before they go home. So there's usually a lot of uh, team planning for these patients before they're discharged. And that ends this module. If you have any questions or concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out.